Turn the Bible to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We're on part six of a series. This will be the sixth and final message of a series where we're refreshing what is the vision of our church. And we've talked about various different things in this series. We've talked about, uh, we've talked about how the gospel needs to go to our the next generation and even the generation after the next. We've talked about different longings in different communities and how there's culture clashes. We have talked about how there's a grand story and that we need a need for a great meta-narrative, what we call the meta-narrative, the great narrative, the story of the world. Last week, we talked about how our church has this gospel so deeply that we are so captured by the greatness that that we must share this and how this is the call to be a missional church. And today, I'd like to close this message with a... uh, close this series with a message called Glory, Culture... And worship. And we're looking at a rather extraordinary text in the Bible, Revelation. I'm going to, we're going to look at a kind of lengthy passage in the Bible today. I'm going to stop in portions of it, giving you some commentary. And I hope it'll be interesting to you. It is, is one of those, whoa, what is going on in this ta- uh, passage? One of those texts in the Bible. It's one of those extraordinary passages in the Bible that just, just kind of <laughs> make you wonder what's going on. And um, it's from Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And I hope it will bless you. And, you know, I, I said last week that the, the passages that I've been going through in this series, that I hope that as you, especially for those of you who are regulars in our church, that you think about these aren't just, you know, the, the blah, blah, the blabbings of this nerdy guy who is our pastor, this pastor Suzhan guy, his strange opinions but that the things that we're going through, especially over this as we're refreshing our vision, that there is the deep things in the Scripture. And that, you know, we know that the Bible is a kind of big book, but that there are certain passages in the Scriptures that would really be emblazoned on your mind and shape how you see the world. And, uh, and this is one of those passages that I hope. That, this, that as you come, as you think about this, things in our church, you say, oh, the centrality of the gospel the meta narrative of the world, you would think 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you would think, oh, the, the gospel to the next generation, you're like Deuteronomy chapter 6. And if we're talking about the glories of the world and the glory of Jesus Christ, you would see here in this passage something so important, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Now, before I get into this text, I usually pray for this message after I read, um, I read the text, but let me... Uh, pray this time for, before we begin this message. So let's, let's bow your head and pray with me. What an extraordinary thing this, your words are, Lord. And now may we wrestle with these words. And would you give the transformation of minds would then produce fruit, powerful fruit, a compelling passion out of our heart to seek you, worship you, have our hearts attached to the deepest glory that shines over all the glories of the world can only be in you, Lord Jesus. So be with me now. I pray that all the things that are just foolishness from me can be forgotten. But things that are truly from you, Lord God, they would stay in everyone who hears these words and bear tremendous fruit unto the glory of your name. Amen. Revelation chapter 4, 
verse 1. This is John. He receives a tremendous revelation from God. And he sees things. Uh, sees things that are really extraordinary. And let's begin. Verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So just to begin, notice there's a door open in heaven. John gets to see deep heavenly realities. This is how it begins. At once, verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Do you guys see it? You see the throne? You see this glorious one looking like emerald and jasper and carnelian with a rainbow. And then you see the 24 thrones of elders around this one throne. Let's continue. Back to the middle of verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let me stop there just a moment. You guys see this? So it's a strange and remarkable sight. I don't know if you guys grew up in the church and if you heard ever any stories about this. After this passage, after chapter 5, you know, all the, all the extraordinary stuff will happen. The seals will be broken. The bowls of wrath will come out. And there's actually a lot of stuff in this book of Revelation, which is really quite terrifying, right? But in this chapter, what you get is just, just weird. It's just weird. It is strange. You have this incredible being in this throne, and then you have these 24 elders, and then you get these four remarkable creatures with all their eyes and all their wings. And, and let me just give you a little ex- explication of this. It's very strange, but it's actually really not that complicated. And especially if you kind of have some idea that, you know, of the way the Bible talks ways. And, you know, in, in this modern age, a lot of times we don't know how to think and talk in the language of the scriptures 
to understand this type of apocalyptic literature. But what this passage is basically saying, this is in the middle, is, who is that? Is God. <laughs> As God. And what of all the jasper and the carnelian and the emeralds represent, what it represents is, is that he who is so valuable, all the treasures and all the riches and all the beauty and all the worth, that's in God. And then you have the 24 elders. What does the 24 elders represent? The Bible talks about how Israel had 12, had 12 tribes. And on the 12 tribes, there will be a kind of 12 elders or 12 kings with their crowns. So the 24 elders represent first 12 tribes of Israel. Now you're also thinking, hmm, pastor, that's only, you only got half the number. You're, you're kind of, your math is a little off. You got, that's only 12. What about the other 12? The other 12 represent the other tribes of all the rest of the nations. That's what it represents. The 24 elders represent essentially every tribe of every tongue, of every language, of every nation that's ever been. So what you have is you have all the elders. In other words, those who are wise, those who are the leaders, those who are crowned of every nation and every tribe. And what is this picture of heaven? is that they will all bow down and they would recognize the greatness of God. And without ceasing, they would sing this song. They would sing this praise. Holy, holy, holy. God is so pure. He is to be separated and He is worthy of all praise and honor. And then you have these four creatures. What are those four creatures? That's kind of weird, isn't it? They have all these eyes. And then, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, that there's this... that that the theologians have talked about that when we get to heaven, that there'll be something that they call the, the beatific vision. They call, it, they call it the visio dei, the vision of God. And that's why these creatures have to have all these eyes, because they want to see. They, they must have so many eyes, because they just long to gaze upon the greatness of God himself. They call it this vision, the beatific vision. And the reason that these four of them and, you know, I mean, scholars and theologians debate about the meaning of these four different creatures. But really, I think all it really represents is each of the four represents all of the different types of creatures and beasts of all of the creation. You got the lion and the ox. You got the man and you got the eagle. Every single one, whether they're on the land or whether, whether they fly or whether they're smart or whether they're tough, that this represents that every single creature made by God will bow down to him. This is what, this, this, is, this sets the scene in chapter 4. So you guys following here so far? This is what, this is, the, this is the, the, the picture that John has been given, that before God, this great and glorious song is being set and everyone bows down to him. Now the plot will thicken when we get to chapter 5, right? So let's go there now. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So do you see it in your mind's eye? I hope you can see this. Here's God. And in his right hand, there's a scroll. And there is not just one seal, but there are seven seals. Verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found 
worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Let me stop there now for a minute. Now, do you guys understand what this passage is saying? What, is in the, what does the scroll represent? You know, it's a, it's a revelation of all the things that are yet to come. And later on, the seals will be broken. And after the seals are broken, they'll be unleashed a torrent of plagues and of curses and of wars and of famine and blood and all this horrible stuff that, that, the, that, that the, the, the book of Revelation is saying that make up the history of, human, of, of, of mankind, of humankind. These are the things that will be opened up. And, and it says that these seals will be broken. But what does the scroll represent? The scroll represents not only what is about to happen, what's going to happen in history, but the scroll represents the meaning of it all. The scroll represents what is the meaning of life and of history and all this stuff, this, these, these lives that we live in all the different nations and all the different cultures. What are we doing? What, does the, what is this all about? The scroll represents the knowledge and of the meaning of it all, which rests only in the right hand. The right hand is the hand of honor, the hand of the rule, and the hand that represents the wisdom and the power, the right hand of God. And it says here that when John comes and finds out who is op- worthy to open this, and he finds out nobody can open this thing. And you know what he begins to do? He begins to cry. And he weeps loudly. He says he weeps loudly. He's wailing. It's, such a, it's a terrible thing. Now, I want to place this story, this thing. You're like, well, that's such an interesting story. Let me tell you something. This is the story of us. This is what's going on now. Now, have you ever heard that we are living in a time that people call the postmodern time? We're living in this postmodern world. And you're like, well, that's a fancy word. And a lot of different people uh, wield it in very different, various different kinds of ways. But here is what it means. What does it mean that we are living in a postmodern world? And that at one time in history, that people, that human beings became very smart, and we discovered science. And with the knowledge that we accrued, that we said, you know what? In the pre-modern world, all the different people believed in all these different religions and superstitions. But then we got science. And then the West, particularly Europe and America, with science and all this different knowledge, grew in ascendance and power in the world. And then they said, now we know everything about the secrets of the world. And then we have cast off all the different superstitions and religions. And now with science and knowledge, we will now rule the world. That's what, that's what ha- that was the, what the modern world was about. That was the fundamental claim and hubris of the modern world. But now we're living in a time that we call the postmodern. And you know what that means? That means the modern world is breaking up. Or at least the beliefs of the modern world is breaking up. Because the modern is now failing. Because what's happened now is Europe and America now are saying, you know what, what we thought was so great, it isn't as great as we thought it was. And it's failing us, and it's breaking down, and we're losing our faith in this. And now we encounter all the other different cultures and religions and worldviews, and now we know it, what's happening in the postmodern world. The postmodern name should be called the post-faith world, or the post-confidence world, or the post-truth world. Because you know what's happening here in the postmodern world? We're bumping up against all the other different religions and all the other different cultures. And now you know what, 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 the, uh, what the modern, or shall we call the postmodern man, us? We're not sure if there is a truth. We're not sure if there is a meaning to this thing. Or if anyone has access to the real meaning. And you know what that means? That means we're all sitting in the boat. 
of Revelation chapter 5, we're all, we're all like the Apostle John. We're all weeping because we don't know the meaning of it all. And that's what postmodernity is. It's a great pessimism and a sadness that we don't know what this thing means. That's what this, this story is about. And you know, at various different points, people today, I think you can only, that there's, you think, we don't, we don't all just weep. Some of us are happy. You know what? It's a, it's a temporary happiness. You can only be happy with certain things for so long. You're like, oh, then all the different cultures, we latch ourselves on to something that's glorious. And we're saying, this is what we'll build our life on. This is what we'll build our society and the meaning of the world upon. And if you've been in our church, sometimes you've heard me talk about this. You've heard me talk about you know, this famous story of Athens versus Sparta. You guys know in history there were two famous cities, Athens and Sparta, and they were mortal enemies and they hated each other. And in Athens, their glory was the glory of wisdom. They were a city that celebrated knowledge and philosophy. And philosophy is just, it's just it literally means the love of wisdom. Philos, love, and Sophia, wisdom. And they were a city that celebrated all the different knowledge and all the different wisdom and art and books and sex and pleasure and all that stuff was in the city of Athens and they built a whole civilization upon it. But then there was another competing city, a different competing culture, and that was Sparta. And they hated Athens. And they would say, these, these bookish, these poetry-loving, these guys who sleep around and come up with this art, these weak set of people, our glory, we're going to build the meaning, the scroll that we believe in is the one of power and of might, of discipline. These are the people that would take, they'd grab a baby, and if this baby was weak, they'd kill this baby, because this baby is not worthy of Sparta. And so these guys went to war against each other, and you know what's in that happening? Right there is a story of all of the world. Because every culture, every Every nation and every tribe, in one way or another, they latch on to some form of glory in the world, and then they say, this is what it all means. But you know what happens? The, 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 the different tribes clash up against each other, and then after a while, so at that point, Athens won. Athens won, but after a while, Athens and the Hellenistic, the Greek, the great Greek civilization of, of, uh, of wisdom, it crumbled down. And then they said, and after a while, all the Greeks said, what does it all mean? And they were, before, before we, we call it postmodern, they would just said, it's just the same old thing as we were in. If you could go back thousands of years and meet those Greeks, they would just say, hey, welcome to the party. Welcome to the skepticism. Welcome to the pessimism. Welcome to the nihilism. Welcome to the nothingism. We don't know what any of it means. And we're all sitting here crying like John. That's what this passage is about. Let me continue. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Hmm. Let me ask you. Anyone? Anyone know who this person is? Huh? Who, who could it be, Peter? Yeah, <laughs> if you've been in a church even since kindergarten, I think any, we could have gone to any kindergartner in this church and said, hey, who do you think this person is? They said, Jesus? And you'd be absolutely right. Of course, who's the Lion of Judah? 
Who is the root of David, the son of David? It can only be Jesus. It is Jesus who is worthy to open the scroll. So now the scroll, the meaning of it all, it's kept from us. And we're living in a time when all the nations and all the cultures were all crying like John. But actually there's one who is worthy to open and break the scroll. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes and are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. You see it? So there's one. He is a lion, but it's interesting. This one who is a lion, he stands up to go take the scroll, and then, but the one who stands up is a lamb. Who could the lamb be? It's got to be Jesus. Because only Jesus shed his perfect blood, that of the lamb. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders bowed down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You notice? So they were singing a song, but now the lamb, who is the lion, has stood up, and he has opened the scroll, and then they begin a new song. They sing a new song. Before they were singing to the God who is the creator and from whom, by whom all things exist. But now they are singing to a lion who is the lamb who opens the scroll up, who now draws in all the nations and all the tribes into a kingdom and priests. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What is all that? Isn't that everything that we seek? You, hear, you feel the whole weight. You feel the tone of the scriptures there. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor. Isn't that everything that we seek in all of our lives? We seek wealth, wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And in Jesus, it's all there. And because He and Him, it's all the glory is in Him. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea. You see? Which creature is that? It's all of them. They're on the earth. They're under the earth. They're even in the sea, even the fish, <laughs> even the fish. And all that is in them saying, even the fish say this, this is according to the scriptures. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the first part of my message here. What does the scriptures have to say? to this postmodern, this, post, 
this skeptical time. We're weeping. We want to know the scroll. We want to know the meaning of it all. We want to know, is there a truth underneath all these different things? All these different religions, and yet none of them seem to have the answer. And all these different cultures, and none of them seem to have the answer. Is there someone that has the answer? And the Bible says, yes, there is. And he's a lion who is a lamb. And And when he opens it up, then all these things will be poured out. Wealth and wisdom, power and glory and blessing. Now let me move to the second portion of my message. I want to talk about the here and the now, our time. Like, Pastor, that was a, wow, extraordinary passage there. Let me talk a little bit about our time here now. I know we live, how is this a message about the vision of this church? What is it about this, you know? Because what's happening in our church? You know, and you're going to say, Pastor, haven't you already said this before? And I have. (laughs) I'm going to be a bit of a broken record. And I don't know if you know this, but pastors are are paid to say the same thing again and again and again in different kinds of ways. I don't know if you guys know that. And you want me to say things. You want me to say the important things, the things that matter, because we need this. You need me to be a broken record. And actually, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible says things again and again and again. It talks about the glories of God and it points to Jesus again and again and again. It just says it in various different kinds of ways, right? And what we're talking about, why is this, this thing that I've been saying for weeks upon weeks? Because this passage, in this passage, is a little microcosm of what's happening in our church and what needs to unfurl in our city, right? And what we have in the city is we we live in a very postmodern city. We live in a city full of this post-skepticism, where people are from all these different, from uh, literally all around the world. And some of them practice various religions, but there's a lot more people who are saying, I'm kind of post-religious now. I'm post-Christian, I'm post-Jewish, or I'm post-whatever now. And we're living in a city such as this. And there's this question. And some of them, maybe they're not at the point of weeping yet, but they go like, I'm not sure. And it says in the book of Ecclesiastes that once you've tried everything, that there gets to the point, it's all just vanity upon vanities. And we live in a city, we've tasted of the prosperity. We've got all the smart people who are supposed to have have the wisdom and the knowledge. And there's been some people who have hit powers. And you know what? Even now, in the city, they're playing out all the different clashes. The clashes of the Sparta and the Athens, except they're just played out in slightly different levels. This is the technology and the knowledge city. You know, um, right now, uh, the, the, the company that's very big now is Apple. And do you guys know that Apple believes in something? Apple believes that they don't just build electronics, that they actually give you a better life. <laughs> Apple actually has the conceit to say that they build the best, greatest stuff, and only the best stuff, and in it has all the knowledge and all the beauty. And Steve Jobs believed, I mean, he really believed this. He believed that he had drank from the marrow of Eastern philosophy and Western science and he had tied this all together. And this is what Apple does. And this is kind of Apple's moment now, right? So all of you iPhone users or so forth, you guys, you guys are kind of like the Athens type folks, right? But you know that there is a competing Sparta now today, right? And there is the, the Sparta of the moment. I mean, this, this a- Apple, I mean, it, it survived and, you know, it looked like a while years ago that Microsoft was going to kill them. But now, you know, they are the richest. They do have the power. <laughs> they do have the glory right now. But there's also a, com- a competitor in this city 
And that, that company is known as Google. Right? And Google, Google doesn't believe in the same things as, as Apple does. And so if you guys are an Android OS user, you guys are into Android? Some of you, I'm an iPhone guy, right? Some of you guys are Android people. But I've noticed that the Android people think the iPhone people are, are lame. And the iPhone people think the Android people are lame. And you know why? Because whichever glory you attach yourself to, you will look down upon the others and they don't mix. You can't bow down to the same glory. And all humans are glory mongers. You know that? You're all glory mongers. And right here in the midst of this city, you know, one day, I mean, like Steve Jobs died. So like everybody's thinking like it's just a matter of time before like, you know, that glory will fade. And what happens is just like the glory of Athens faded, well, Apple's time will be over too. And then it will be left wondering, hey, Anyone have access to the scroll? <laughs> have anyone have access to this whole thing? That's, that's what's going on in this multi-ethnic, this postmodern city. But you know, the story is also happening, unfurling right here in our church. In this church, you have, you have this kind of, you have a, do you know that this church is actually multicultural? You're like, how can it be multicultural? Actually, there, this may be so-called Korean-American church, but there's actually more than one culture right here in the middle of this church. If you go down, down, down the down the hallway, you have a culture. It's, a, it's the first generation, more Asian, Korean culture. And you know they believe in a different glory too. They believe in the Asian collective glory. And the Asian collective glory has a set of rules about how they get to their glory. And it's like this. Everybody plays out their part. And then we will honor you. Whoever is the top dog, the, the lower dogs have to obey that top dog and respect him. And then when we all get together... All that we, that makes us glorious, we'll have a group glory. The Asians and the Eastern cultures believe in a group glory. So this is how it works. Everyone, everyone is assigned a place. There's number, whoever's number one, two, three, four. Are you number eight? If you're number eight, then you know what you have to do? You have to respect and bow down to whoever's number seven. And you know what you have to do? You have to treat those who are number eight better than you, and number eight has to bow down to you. You have to be a cog in the machine so that the whole thing will give off a glory. That's the way the Asian first generation mind works. But you know, over here, you come down in this room, a lot of you guys are second or maybe third generation, and you swallowed a different whole way of approach toward glory. A different culture, a different language, a different tribe's way of thinking. And in this tribe, we believe, we don't believe in this group glory. You know what we believe? We believe in the glory of me. We believe in my glory, the glory that's going to come out of me and that I'm, that I'm interested in. And what we believe in is something that's much more individualistic. I have a dream. And if I chase this dream, and if I really believe in it with all my heart and I work hard at it, then something in me you know, will come out and I will attain this glory. That's what we believe out here. And you guys notice that if someone comes along and tells you, hey, you're number eight, you have to bow down to number seven, you're like, I'm not number eight, and you're not number seven. Who the heck are you to me? You just say, hey, get out of my face. I've, I'm going to chase my dream. I'm me. I get, to, I get the glory of my, of, of, of my life. And do you realize if people chase the glories of the world and they worship that glory, and we worship our own individual glories, you know what happens? Clash. It's Athens and Sparta all over again. And these things mix like oil and water, and there's fighting. And so this is some of what's going on here in this church. Right. Now, 
I just couldn't resist. <laughs> I could not resist but give you this illustration. Right? And if you guys have been uh, following this little story that's going on in the sports world, but it's not even just the sports world. It's, it's, in, it's on, I think, I think Time Magazine did a story on it. New York Times has done multiple stories on it. And that is the story of Lynn Sanity. Any of you guys following the Lynn Sanity story, the Jeremy Lynn story? Now, I, I, I'm not really a big basketball fan, but I cannot get enough of this Jeremy Lynn story. I mean, every time someone sends me a Jeremy Lynn story, I just got to read it. <laughs> and it is so fantastic. It is such a fantastic story. And, and um, do you guys realize this, this thing went viral? It's, it's crazy. It's not just viral. It's super viral. <laughs> It's not just viral here in America. It's viral in China. It's viral all in, in all throughout Asia. I hear he is making like front page news in Korea. It's crazy. He's not even Korean. Okay. So how is it that a 23-year-old, relatively short basketball player, six foot three, okay, from this town actually, he's from Palo Alto, right? He's from our neck of the woods, and he's a nerd. So he's Asian. I mean, he's got to be a nerd because he went to Harvard. Okay. So how can a six foot three Chinese nerd, a little too short of a guy, go viral all throughout the world? I mean, it's crazy. How can that possibly be the case? Right? And the reason I'm telling you this is because Revelation chapter 4 and 5 explains to you why. You can have psychologists and all these different people who are anthropologists, they can try to study, but I'm just telling you right here, Revelations 4 and 5 explains to you why, because... In him, in Jeremy Lin, do you know that there's the glory of the first generation Asian culture? And he's the glory of the Western individualistic me culture. Because we share the same glory. That's why we're all interested in it. That's why we're all getting into it. That's why we're all, we all want to share and be, and bask and be touched. And we're so interested. We've got to read these articles. And, you know, I've, list, I've listened to tons of him being interviewed. And, and, and he's like any other athlete. He's really boring. Oh, we just try really hard, you know, 110%. percent like, yeah, it's a little boring, right? But it's, it's still interesting. And he's not even that good-looking guy. He's a little dweeby and he's got a bad haircut. And people can't get enough of this kid, right? Why? Because all those Chinese people in the world, a billion Chinese people or all the Asian people are saying, you know what? He's our group glory. When he arises, our whole group arises. And then we'll have all, we all share in this glory, but you know what? All the American, Western individualists, the rugged individualists, all the me-centered glory, we love this kid too. You know why? Because we're all sitting around going, you know what? He did it. Nobody believed in him. He was going up against racism. He was going up against being short. He was going up against Harvard prejudice. And yet, here he is. He's kicking butt in the NBA. He's, he's beating Kobe down. He had a dream. He chased his dream. He worked really hard. He, he, brought, he put all his glory and all his guts and his talent. And now he did it. He reached after his dream and he got the glory. And you know what? We all want this too. So all of us American, Western, second generation individualists, we like Jeremy Lin. All the first generation, Eastern, collective group, 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 group worshipers, group glory worshipers, they love Jeremy Lin. And then, and so this story is just going crazy. And I'm just thinking, you know, and even though I can kind of like, I can kind of deconstruct my own motivations, tomorrow I'm still going to read them again. <laughs> I'm going to be like, whatever, all right, it's cool, all right? And, you know, but you know what's going to happen? You know, 
Jeremy Lin, he's just, you know what he is? He's just a, a, a tiny little taste. I mean, just a tiny, I don't know, it seems almost sacrilegious to compare him to the lion of Judah, Jesus. He's just a tiny little taste of what it could be like when a glory which is so great and we would, would bind people together. That's what it could be like. Right? I mean, it's weird right now. The black people love him. The white people love him. The Chinese people love him. The Korean people love him. Isn't that crazy? It's just crazy. It's just a tiny little taste. And when there's a glory that rises above it all. But you know what? Jeremy Lin, he just got exposed the other, the other night. He went up against the Miami Heat. I watched the second half of that game. And they shut him down. He looked bad in that game. Eight points, bunch of turnovers. He got benched in the, in the fourth quarter, right? And you know what's happening? That's what's happening. That which happened to Athens and to Sparta and will happen to Apple and will happen to Google and will happen to Jeremy Lin. It will all happen, right? But it will never happen to Jesus. Every message in this church, it always winds back to Jesus. And you know what? I hope that doesn't ever get boring to you. I hope that never gets old to you. Because you know what? If Jesus is this glorious... You will read every article. You will sing the new songs. There will always be new songs. And that's why every generation are always coming up with new songs. We always want to sing new songs. They, they, even here in the Bible, it says a new song was written for Jesus. Because Jesus is better than Jeremy and Lynn. Right? Jesus is the ultimate glory. And you know what it says here in this passage? Jesus, he is a lion of Judah. And some of you are looking for a lion. You want one who is mighty and powerful and one that you can, like, oh, I'm a little afraid of him. Man, but I want to follow him. He's mighty and full of strength. And you want to follow the lion. But you know, also, this Jesus, it says here in the scripture, he is also the lamb. And some of you are hurting and some of you are afraid. And some of you need tremendous gentleness. You need great safety. And you come to Jesus. And in Jesus, you get the lion who is the lamb, who sheds his blood, who washes all your sins, who makes you utterly safe and takes you to his glory. And only when the lion, who is the lamb, he is enthroned, then all the 24 elders, every tribe and every nation will bow down and we'll have a super party. There'll be a super unity. There'll be a super gladness and a super joy far greater than Jeremy Lin. Right? That's what will happen. You know, this is a world we're living in now. The post-skeptical, post-modern, I don't know if you understand this, as rich or as prosperous may be, it's actually a very sad world. It's very sad when people don't have meaning, when people don't know what it's about. And so then, so then they were like, okay, well, I'll have pleasure. I'm going to drink my coffee or I'll do my drugs or I'll have my sex or I'll fall in love or I'll get rich or I'll get my promotion and I'll get my success and then we'll get to all the glories and then I'll meet somebody else with glories and at the end we'll all just kind of go, and that's it? And that's it? That is a sad world. And when people finally get to the end of that, then they cry. But the only way we can begin to laugh and we can have joy. And we can bow. It's because when we bow down, when we bow down to the lion who is the lamb who shed his blood. And so right here, this great, this strange, this odd, weird passage with all the eyes, you know, all the eyes and all the wings and all these weird creatures, 
This is a story that's unfurling right here in San Jose, right here in this church. It's like, are you serious, Pastor? I mean, come on. This is just another little church. We're not even white, and the white people are the most powerful people in our society. We're just this, this church off here, off on the road here in Santa Clara, and you're saying this great thing is happening in this, in this church? It is. Because the lion who is the lamb, has, he, has, he has no respect for those people who are already rich. You notice all the wisdom and all the majesty and all the might and all the power, every great superlative, it, it gets flung at Jesus because in him is the deepest glory. And he, the lion who is the lamb, says, on these weird poor people, I will pour out myself. This is a city that desperately needs this Jesus. Our church Churches like this, divided across generations and across cultures, we need this Jesus. And when we bow down to him, great things will start to happen. When we say Jesus, we'll bow down to him. And all those who want the lamb and all those who want the lion will all meet. And we'll be in unity and great things will happen in our church and in our city. So let's bow down to Jesus, the lion and the lamb.